I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, and an extended interview with Rick Johnson, author of the new book, Nature Wants Us to be Fat. My name is Richard Johnson. I'm a professor of medicine here at the University of Colorado. In fact, you direct the Department of Hypertension, or have you changed your position now? I was the chief here from 2008 till 2017, but currently I'm simply a professor. (laughs) That gives you more time to research and less that you have to be directing. Absolutely correct. Are you doing a lot of research? I am. I continue to be a researchaholic. I've been doing research since the early 80s. It makes up a great part of my life. It's exciting, exhilarating, and hard work. It is all those things, with a lot of mysteries, a lot of dead ends, a lot of sudden doors that open up. It's been a series of great surprises and discoveries. The best I can say is that this whole story that I've written about is like finding treasure. I found a piece of gold, and we thought that was the best thing in the world, and then we found another one, and then we found another, and then we found a whole treasure chest. It's sort of like finding King Priam's treasure. What we've realized is that this pathway that we've identified seems to be involved not just in obesity and diabetes, but in many, many current diseases, having a role in cancer and having a role in dementia and other medical problems. Backing up just a little bit, you're in the division of hypertension and nephrology, which means that you deal with things like high blood pressure and kidney disease and gout. Those are things most people think about in these areas. Yes, that's right. So, uh, you know, I started primarily in the world of kidney disease and high blood pressure. But as my research progressed, I migrated into other fields and ended up studying metabolic syndrome, obesity, diabetes, and other conditions. Metabolic syndrome is that very strange thing where somebody's metabolism gets out of balance and they get really hungry for things that they don't really need. They lose energy. They can't build muscle as much. They're more prone to heart disease. Yeah, metabolic syndrome refers to a constellation of findings, and usually it includes abdominal obesity, high blood pressure, elevated blood sugar, sort of like insulin resistance. So it's not true diabetes, but it's sort of pre-diabetes. It means that a person's cells in their body can't take in energy, and the insulin levels are very high. You become resistant to the effects of insulin. So the insulin levels go up to help control your blood sugar. But even with that, your blood sugars tend to be a little bit on the high side. And then you have elevated triglycerides in your blood, which is fat, and oftentimes you'll have fatty liver. And this constellation of signs got the name metabolic syndrome many years ago. We now know that about a quarter of all adults have metabolic syndrome in the U.S. In some places in the world, it's higher. So it seems to be a real common issue. In the U.S., in some parts of the world, it's lower, though. Absolutely. So it can be lower. It's sort of like diabetes. In our country, diabetes is present in about 10 to 12 percent of the population. You go to Samoa, it's like 40 percent. You go to Kuwait, it's like 25%. You study the Pima Indians where it's 50%. And so diabetes and metabolic syndrome, which kind of run together, they vary quite a bit. But we have very high rates here compared to some places like Sweden. But it's still low compared to countries like Kuwait, Samoa, and so forth. It isn't good, but it could be worse. It could be worse. Rick Johnson, you've written some other books. One you called The Fat Switch, one you called The Sugar Fix, and now you have a new book called Nature Wants Us to be Fat. That's right. Do you want to tell us what this book's about? Yeah, so this book is the culmination of the work I've been doing for the last 20 or 30 years. It's told like a detective story because that's sort of the way it was when we tried to figure this out. And it takes us through an adventure story where we try to figure out what causes obesity. We begin by including studies of animals in nature that naturally become obese. We try to figure out why they become obese, and then we relate it to humans. And from that, there were many discoveries. Some of them are very surprising about what causes obesity. 
And from that comes a whole series of ways to treat obesity, many of which have not been tried before. And we have some data that some of these methods will work. And we've also been able to link this pathway of metabolic syndrome, not just with you know classic things like diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, and heart disease, but also, as I mentioned, with things like behavioral disorders, with dementia, with alcoholism, and with cancer. So many paths lead to similar roads sometimes. Yeah, it's sort of like we identified a major, major mechanism that animals use to become fat. And this mechanism is involved in a lot of diseases. And so I think it will turn out to be important in terms of how we approach a lot of our current diseases. Let's start with the punchline. What do you think animals do to get fat? They can do a variety of things, but our first big breakthrough was the discovery of the importance of fructose. Fructose is known as fruit sugar. In the wild, it's in fruit and honey. Perhaps many of you are going, hey, what's this all about? Because aren't fruits supposed to be healthy? I thought honey was healthy. It will sound sort of funny to hear that fructose might actually be at the core of what's driving the whole you know, metabolic syndrome and related diseases. But it turns out that it really is fructose. And we've been able to show how. And we've also been able to show why natural fruit intake for us is actually healthy. And yet when animals eat a lot of fruit, they become fat. There's a lot to unpack in all of that. Let's start for just a second about the concept of animals want to be fat. Given how much Americans try not to be fat, why do animals want to be fat? The title's not completely true. Only some animals want to gain fat, and that's to protect them during periods of food shortage. Most animals will actually try to maintain a small amount of fat and they'll regulate it very well. So they'll have some fat, but they don't want to get truly obese. And so what most animals do, if they eat too much one day, they'll eat less the next. If they exercise and run around too much one day and burn too many calories, the next day they'll slow down and balance out other than what they're expected to do You know, if they're actively growing. You can show that by taking an animal and force feeding it so that it gains weight, or you can fast an animal so it loses weight against its will. And then if you stop that, they go right back to the weight they should be at that time of the year. It's not even goes back to the weight they were. They'll go back to the weight where they feel they should be for that time of the year. But there are animals that want to gain weight, and they do it at specific times. The classic is the animal preparing for hibernation. Oh, yes, those bears that get so big before they go to sleep. Yes, so a bear, for example, will maintain its weight during the summer, but in the fall, suddenly it will become hungry, really hungry. It can gain as much as 8 or 10 pounds a day. They can be eating 20,000 calories a day, and they will increase their weight as much as 50%. And the way they tend to do it is by eating a lot of fruit. We think of fruit as healthy, but we are eating, you know, how many berries or grapes do you eat, Shelly? I don't eat very many grapes, actually. Let's say you eat a bowl of grapes, you know. These guys will eat 10,000 grapes in 24 hours. So we're talking a different level of fruit. Orangutans, when they want to gain weight, they'll eat fruit and they'll gorge. And I mean, they'll get into a tree and they'll eat fruit after fruit after fruit and eat it fast and consume and get a lot of sugar. Normally, a a fruit will have like five grams of fructose, maybe 10 at max. When we are eating fruit, we tend to eat only, you know, one or two fruit at a time. But a bear or a orangutan or an animal that wants to eat fruit to gain weight, they'll eat a lot more relative to their weight. They're getting a lot more sugar. I'm calling that sugar, but it's fruit sugar or fructose. And that's what makes fruit sweet. And 
Animals that want to gain weight will pick ripe fruit, and ripe fruit has more sugar. When a fruit ripens, the sugar content goes up. And when that happens, fructose will increase, but also the good vitamins tend to go down as a fruit ripens. So things like vitamin C tends to decrease as a fruit ripens. Vitamin C actually can block some of the effects of fructose. And so in the early part of when the fruit is just beginning to grow, it's very tart. It has a lot of fiber, potassium, all these things that kind of slow the absorption of fructose. And there's not much sugar in there when it's really just beginning to grow. It's got a lot of vitamin C. And so it discourages animals to eat it because they're not going to get that much sugar. And what they do get is going to be blocked by all the things that are in the fruit. But as the fruit ripens, the sugar content goes up, the vitamin C content goes down, and the, all the other good things go down. And now the fruit is more suited to stimulate this metabolic switch where they start gaining weight and become hungry and so forth. That's sort of how it works. So the animals that eat a lot of this fructose trigger a biologic switch. And this was what we've been trying to uncover, a actual biologic mechanism that triggers weight gain, obesity, insulin resistance, a rise in blood pressure, all the features of metabolic syndrome, and they're all, all there to help us survive. So, you know, when I was taught about metabolic syndrome when I was a medical resident, it was told to me as something that's pathologic, you know? Insulin resistance is not a normal thing. We shouldn't be insulin resistant. Metabolic syndrome is a disease. Actually, it's not a disease. It is a normal biologic process that animals trigger when they need to gain weight. That was so interesting to read in your book, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat, about the animals that migrate, such as geese. They get fatty livers. They get all these things that in people, if people get stuck with these conditions, they're really sick. Oh, yeah. But the geese only have the fatty liver when they're traveling lots of miles and they need the extra energy. Hummingbirds, every day, they end up at the end of the day with a fatty liver. Yeah. But then they burn it up over the night and go back to needing more food. And so they're very robust in being able to handle things that would cause metabolic syndrome in us. Hummingbirds, their blood sugar goes up above 400. They basically become diabetic and fat during the day when they're drinking sugar water, and then they burn it off at night. Despite the fact that they are so metabolically fit, if they drink pure sugar water all day long, their livers turn pearly white, the fattest of all livers of birds, one researcher wrote. And they develop frank diabetes and then they burn it off. It's an amazing story about the power of sugar that it can take an animal that is so metabolically fit and cause them to become diabetic. Hummingbird feeders, you put sugar water to get them. Sugar water and nectar are pretty much the same. Just that a hummingbird can basically become a diabetic by the end of the day, but by the next morning, they're so healthy and burned it all off so much, the fats and all of the metabolic symptoms of what we would call diabetes, that they just start fresh the next day. Exactly. And here's a really interesting story, Shelley. Fruit flies are flies that love fruit. And they eat fruit, and that's pretty much fructose as well. But there's like other things in the fruit, right? But if you switch a fruit fly to pure sugar, it will become obese. They have actually can show that flies will become diabetic and obese. A fly can become obese? And diabetic, yeah. And then they die young. As you think about it, a fly is trapped inside of an exoskeleton. Right. So it would cause all kinds of extra pressure and problems for it to become obese. Yes, it's true. Like, uh, you know, ants will become fat if they eat sugar. You can't tell because they've got this exoskeleton, so the fat's inside. But ants can become quite fat from sugar. And there are some ants that will search out sugar. They love sugar more so than other types of food. Rick Johnson, I hear you saying that in nature, the kinds of sugars generally are okay for animals, but our human style of sugars, even some of the animals, 
that are used to sugars, it's too much for them. Yeah, so refined sugar probably can overwhelm animals in nature. Does it overwhelm us as humans? Absolutely, for sure it does. But Rick Johnson, this is in most of our foods. Yes, Shelley, it is in most of our foods. In fact, 70% or more of processed foods have sugars put in them. And you wanna know something really interesting? If you take an animal and you knock out its sweet taste so it can't taste sweet, it will no longer care for artificial sugars like Splenda. It doesn't give it any kind of dopamine surge. There's no pleasure with that. But they still will seek out sugar water even though they can't taste it. We found that it's because when you drink fructose, for example, the metabolism of fructose is what's involved in the craving response for fructose. It's not our taste buds? I'm thinking as I say that, Rick Johnson, because so many people say that we have been doomed as a human population because we have enough food. The food just tastes so delicious. Of course, people eat too much. You're saying something different. Not fully, but let me explain it. It's a little bit more complicated than that. So we have five tastes. One is sweet, you know, one is salty, one is savory or umami, and then there's two that are bitter and sour. So there's actually three tastes that we really like, sweet, salty, and savory. And the other two are sort of meant to help us avoid foods that are bitter or sour because many times they're not good for us. Now, the sweet is your sugar, right? What we know is that if you knock out the sweet receptor, animals will still like sweet foods, and it's because of the metabolism. They will reduce how much sugar they eat. They'll eat less sugar, but if you give them a choice between sugar water and regular water, they will be able to identify the sugar water even though they can't taste it. Rick Johnson, there have been other scientists who've studied the fact that some sensing molecules inside of our bodies that are not on our taste buds but in our digestive tract are very similar in their makeup to the taste buds on our tongue. So when the flavor, the taste of sugar is knocked out, the sweet taste, is that just referring to the tongue or is that referring to all of these receptors for that kind of substance? So it turns out that the study that was done where they knocked out the sweet receptors included the taste buds, sweet receptors, but there are sweet receptors in the gut. However, we here at the university knocked out just the taste, only the taste and the tongue, leaving the sweet receptors intact in the gut. And we knocked out all taste. And when we did that, the animals still like sugar. You did this with mice or rats? Mice. And what we found is that if you knock out the taste receptor, you reduce the amount of sugar you eat, but you still become obese from sugar. And sadly, you become more sensitive to the effects of sugar. So you, you eat less sugar, but you'll still become more obese. That's another part of your story that we'll get to in just a moment. I want to keep giving people the punchline, though, which is that your research has shown that if people reduce their consumption of sugary drinks, foods that have added sugar in them, it can do a huge benefit for their health. But if their health is broken somewhat by these kinds of foods, there may be other things they need to pull out of their diet as well. That's a quick summary. Is that fair to say? Uh, not fully. You know, fructose or sugar is the primary driver of obesity. You're totally right in that part. Sugar or high fructose corn syrup make up about 15% of our diet. And there's some children that are eating 25% of their food is sugar children, adolescents, and also disadvantaged populations are often eating a higher percentage of sugar. So that is your number one driver. You're right. But there are other drivers of obesity, and they're very important. So I don't want to say that they're distant second or third. They are involved. Originally, when we were studying this, we were thinking, hey, it's all sugar, you know. And so my first book was, hey, let's just cut out sugar and fructose, but it wasn't enough. It's not enough. And that is because of the sad discovery by our group 
that there are other foods that trigger this switch, the survival switch, I call it. And this switch can be triggered by foods such as high glycemic carbs, bread, rice, potatoes, and chips. These foods do not contain fructose, but they actually can do this. And what we found is that the way they work is they stimulate the production of fructose in the body. So it isn't just about the fructose we eat. It's about the fructose we make. And no one was really thinking of foods as working by causing us to make fructose. Everyone was thinking it was the foods we were eating. It's, it's the carbs and the protein and the fat. But it turns out that these carbs, which we call high glycemic carbs, they're called high glycemic carbs because when you eat them, they release glucose and the glucose gets into the blood and your normal glucose is like 80 to 100 but when you eat a high glycemic carb, the glucose in the blood can go up transiently, maybe to 120, 130, 140, or 150, but it's transient. So everyone just says, well, don't worry about it. Or if you do worry about it, they say, well, the problem is that it stimulates insulin and insulin puts fat on you. And so the thought is that high glycemic carbs could be a cause of obesity, primarily through this mechanism. But what we found is that when the, when the glucose levels go up, that triggers the body to make fructose from the glucose. And the glucose can be converted to fructose through a chemical reaction, and we call that reaction the polyol pathway. Polyol sounds like everything thrown in, including the kitchen sink, polyol. Yeah, that sort of sounds like that. It was a name given to it a long time ago. It's been known that the body can make fructose, but no one thought it was important. What we found is that, that a number of foods trigger the production of fructose in the body. And animals use this. So not all animals eat fruit to become fat. There are animals that don't eat fruit that become fat other ways. One way is high glycemic carbs. They will cause obesity. Now, when you say high glycemic, you mean any food that you eat that turns quickly into sugar or it turns quickly into glucose, and then your glucose levels go up in the blood. And when that happens, it triggers the production of an enzyme that converts some of the glucose to fructose. So the glucose isn't actually what causes the obesity. It, it does a little bit through stimulating insulin. The real way uh, high glycemic foods cause obesity and diabetes is because they get converted to fructose in the body. You know, Rick Johnson, for a long time, there has been debate about whether the body can make fat on its own or it's only food that you eat that turns into fat. That was the idea 20 years ago. But your thought about this met metabolic switch where the body shifts and turns other energy that's taken in, other food, into fat through these pathways is part of this unraveling of a deeper secret to how right. we get fat. Yeah, so let's just talk about how the fructose works. So fructose is unique among nutrients. Think of energy as two forms of energy. You've got the energy that we are burning all the time that we're using up, and we call that energy ATP. And that energy is in our cells, and it's allowing me to talk to you right now. It's allowing you to talk to me. It's allowing you to stand up and do all the things that you are doing. And it allows me to eat, walk, talk, breathe, everything. So ATP is our main fuel. And we can store fuel. And when we store our energy, it's in the form of fat or sometimes glycogen. Glycogen is sort of the storage form of carbohydrates. But it's fat that's our main storage fuel. Well, that makes sense because it would take a lot of sugar cubes stored on the body to be able to store enough energy. And fat is much more efficient at storing energy. Yes, it's like nine calories per gram. So when you store fat, it's a great way to store energy. So it turns out that the place where ATP is made are in energy factories that we call mitochondria. 
and these mitochondria are pouring out the ATP that allows us to do what we want. The mitochondria actually use oxygen to help make this ATP. So much of the oxygen we breathe is used to help make energy that we use. So what fructose does is really clever. What it does is it generates a substance called uric acid, and our data suggests that what the uric acid does is it sort of quiets down the mitochondria. It does so by causing oxidative stress to the mitochondria. And when that happens, the mitochondria produce less ATP. And so where does the energy go? If you make less ATP, the energy goes to fat. And so it sort of shunts the calories we're eating to fat instead of immediate energy. You said that it's not just sugar, it's not just fructose that can cause this to happen. Unfortunately, this polyol pathway indicates there's some other foods people eat, especially if this pathway is already running, that will lead to somebody still having problems with their metabolism, with gout, high blood pressure, heart disease, obesity. What are some of the other foods that do this? So we already mentioned high glycemic carbs. That's why a low-carb diet is so effective, or a keto diet, because it's removing not only sugar from the diet, but these high glycemic carbs. And when you do that, the fat doesn't cause obesity because you have to be hungry. You have to lose your ability to regulate your weight. The fructose makes you lose your ability to regulate your weight so that you're hungry and you'll keep eating. The fructose leads your body to have trouble recognizing where its balance is for health. That's correct. And so the way it does that is it induces a thing called leptin resistance. Leptin is a hormone that's released by the fat cells that tells us when to stop eating. And normally animals are very sensitive to leptin and they won't eat more than they need and they you know, will just maintain their weight. But in order to gain weight, you have to lose your ability to regulate the weight. The way fructose does that is it causes the body to become resistant to leptin so that when leptin goes up after a meal, it doesn't tell you that you're full. And so you end up eating more. And most people who are overweight or obese are resistant to leptin. They, you know, this was the, a big discovery years ago that people with obesity don't respond well to leptin. And you can show that by injecting leptin in people or in animals and normally, if you're sensitive to leptin and you get an injection of leptin, you're going to quit eating or reduce your food intake. But if you're leptin resistant and you get a shot of leptin, you'll just keep eating. And fructose makes you keep eating once you get leptin. So there's one camp that would say that the reason that Americans, for instance, have these metabolic challenges and so much obesity, something that they didn't have 50 years ago as a population, is because food just tastes so darn good. But you described something where it becomes an addictive, desperate craving if somebody's hormone balance, their metabolism, their fructose signaling is out of whack. Yeah. The fructose drops the ATP in the cell. So your immediate energy is less and your stored energy is more. What happens when the ATP levels go down, you sense that low energy and you get hungry. And so you eat more and you become resistant to leptin. And so you're eating more. Over the last century, the plates of food that people get gets bigger and bigger in the restaurants. And it isn't because that's a good thing to attract you. They're doing it because they know that if they don't, you're going to leave hungry. And if you leave hungry, you're not going to come back. So it turns out that there's a biology that's going on and we're eating more and exercising less because of a switch that's been activated. And in fact, that switch will drop your metabolic rate, but only while you're resting. This is important for survival because if you're trying to survive, you want to be able to forage for food. And so while you're foraging, you maintain normal energy. But as soon as you quit, your resting energy metabolism drops. A hibernating bear wants to not move very much because it's hibernating. Well, that's after. I'm talking about when they're searching for food. So when they're searching for food, they're going all over looking for food. They'll be spending energy then, but to help conserve and to put more fat on for the time when they hibernate, 
they'll actually become less active when they're resting. When they sleep, they actually sleep more deep, and then the next day they get up and so forth and forage for food. You raise the question of what other foods can do this. This is a discovery that came out of this whole work. What happened was when we realized that the body can make fructose, we began to think about animals in the desert and animals in the oceans. You know, the fattest animal in the world is the whale, and it's not eating fruit. It's not eating bread. So how does it get fat? And so one of the questions was, what other mechanisms could drive fat? And the way we tried to figure it out was kind of a pretty cool way. You know, what is the benefit of fat for an animal in this ocean? And here's the trick. When a whale burns fat, or when any animal burns fat, you're making energy, right? But you're also making water. So what's really interesting is fat doesn't contain water, but when you burn fat, you produce water. You produce water and carbon dioxide. And this has been known since, you know, like the 1900s. Fat is a source of water, not just energy. Rick Johnson, you're implying that one reason that some animals store fat isn't just for energy, it's so that they can get fresh water. Right. One third of the water that a whale gets comes from its fat. And your book was fascinating to read, talking about a desert lizard that makes its tail extremely fat when there's enough water and food so that during the drought season, it can survive and have enough water. In hot climates and dry climates, animals don't really want to have fat on their body because it can increase their body temperature. So they tend to put the fat in their tails or like on a hump on their back, like the camel. And this way, the fat in the hump can be used to produce water, but it's not going to overheat them when they're wandering in the desert. Once we knew that these animals were using fat as a source of water, and, and actually there's a primate, the fat-tailed dwarf lemur. That fat-tailed part of its name is the clue. Yes, that's the clue. And what it does is during the dry season, when there's very little water around, it will effectively hibernate. They call it estivate. It's like hibernation, but they go into a hollow in the tree and they live off the fat in their tail and they use it not just for energy, but a key part of it is to get the water from it. So once we knew that fat was a source of water, then we knew that animals would want to put on fat as a means to provide water. Rick Johnson, you seem to be saying that animals evolved to take advantage of the fact that fat is a stable way to store energy and also to store water. Yes, exactly. And this opened up the idea that maybe mild dehydration could be a stimulus for fat. Because if you were mildly dehydrated, it would be like an alarm signal to you to say, hey, I might need to find water. And so you would look for water. You could turn on a hormone called vasopressin, which helps concentrate the urine. But couldn't fat production be also part of this? And so we started studying this, and we found that this polyol pathway gets turned on in dehydrated states. So if you become dehydrated, your body starts to make fructose to help store fat as a source of water. And then we went on and realized that actually dehydration is not a good condition to be in. The classic dehydration is a situation where you're losing water, like diarrhea, vomiting, like an animal that has bled or something and it's gotten dehydrated. In those circumstances, it's not really great for the animal. So it would be wiser for the animal to not lose water, but figure out how to gain water. And one way to do that is to eat salt. Because if you eat salt, you're not actually losing any water, but you're increasing the salt concentration in your blood, which is the same thing that happens when you lose water. But now, when the salt concentration goes up in your blood, that stimulates the polyol pathway. And now, when you eat even carbs that don't raise your glucose up, 
Now you're going to convert those to fructose. Oh, because this is a way to get the body to store more fat, which means store more water. Right. That implies you found that somebody eating a lot of salt in their diet can also be increasing their fat storage, increasing a lot of these parts of the fructose pathway that can be damaging if it's on too long. Yeah, so just like we have a taste receptor to encourage us to eat sugary foods, we have a taste receptor to ask us to eat salty foods, and it's for the same reason, because salt will help us store fat. So it was an evolutionary principle to try to get us to store fat. And it turns out that almost everyone who's overweight or obese tends to be dehydrated. They have slightly higher salt concentrations in their blood. And if you do fancy testing, bioimpedance, where you measure dehydration through that mechanism, they have a 12-fold increased risk for being dehydrated compared to a lean person. Basically, it's because of all the salt and also sugar dehydrates as well. And so these two things activate the production of fructose in your body. Rick Johnson, I'm making the checklist of ideas from your book, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat, for helping a body be in better balance in this modern world with all of these extra foods that we can eat or substances we can take in. And in the book, you're suggesting that people might be better off eating less salt, eating less sugar, eating less concentrated fructose, not fruit juice. Correct. Or the table sugars that have a combination of fructose and glucose in them. Also, you mentioned that if people, when they're hungry, drink water, they might actually reduce the craving for food at that point. Yeah. When we realized that salt could cause obesity, and we showed it in animals, and we then did clinical studies in people and showed that salt intake correlates with an increased risk for diabetes and things like that. Others have found it too. We realized that there was more than one mechanism to drive obesity. Not only sugar, but high salt is playing a role. Interestingly, the way high salt works, and actually even the way sugar works partly, is by making you appear dehydrated. So when you drink a soft drink, your blood test will show you get dehydrated, not hydrated. That stimulates the production of fructose and the development of obesity. There were some studies some time ago, maybe they weren't even studies, where soda companies tried to get long-distance runners to drink sodas to advertise their product. And the poor runners were so thirsty that they threw the soda cans away just to get regular water. Yeah, it's been shown in experimental studies. Anyway, so we decided that hydrating with water might actually be a mechanism to block obesity, right? And people have been talking about water intake and drinking six to eight glasses a day. And, you know, all these people run around with their bottles of water and they swear that it makes them healthier, and yet there's all these physicians that write, hey, you don't need to drink extra water. The kidneys are going to do the work for you. If you don't drink enough water, the kidneys are going to concentrate the urine. They're going to take care of you that way. It all depends, doesn't it? Because somebody who is eating in a way that means they're not triggering this fat switch, survival to switch, they may not need as much water to drink. But somebody whose metabolism is out of balance in this place where their cravings are high, it may be a different story. Actually, if you get dehydrated, you're going to activate the switch. Dehydration activates the switch. So it may be that the kidneys can control the urine output so that your blood volume ends up being normal. But if it's been activated to try to hold on to water, it's also been activated to make you fat. That's the problem. We tested this by taking people and giving them salty soup. What's great about soup is you can hide the salt in it. And when we gave them salty soup, we could show immediately their blood pressure went up right away and they activated the switch. We could show it. But if you gave it with water, you could block that. And if we took animals on sugar and we gave them extra water, we could reduce their risk for obesity, even if they ate the same amount of sugar. So it turns out a lot of the way this is working is through dehydration. You know, about 10 years ago, it was discovered that people with obesity tend to have a circulating hormone called vasopressin that's high. And no one understood why people with obesity have this elevation in their hormone called vasopressin. And vasopressin is the hormone that holds on to water, and it does so by reducing the amount of urine you make. 
what concentrates the urine. It's what makes the urine dark yellow. And so everyone was thinking, ah, this is what vasopressin does. This is what I learned in medical school. Vasopressin is the hormone that blocks us from losing too much water through the urine. But in some animals, vasopressin has other mechanisms. For example, in the frog, vasopressin prevents water loss through the skin of the frog. And there's some evidence that vasopressin may actually reduce the loss of water vapor from the lungs. So we thought, well, maybe vasopressin is involved in obesity. Maybe it tries to store fat. And when we studied it, we found that vasopressin was in fact a hormone that dries fat and that it's working not through the classical receptor it does for urinary concentration, but it works through a special receptor called the V1B receptor. And when that happens, vasopressin actually dries fat production. It's actually part of how sugar causes fat. And so all of these are examples where you're eating food, maybe your body even needs the energy, and instead your cells are shunting the energy not into something you can use to breathe or move or something like that, but instead your body is shunting more of it into storage as fat. Yes. So you're saying dehydration all by itself can trigger this so that you're not using the energy in your body to repair your cells. You're using it to turn this energy into fat. Yeah. So we talk about hydration. Hydration is good because it will reduce your risk for being fat to be well hydrated. If you're dehydrated, it's going to turn on the switch. But there's a new phrase that's called underhydrated. And underhydrated refers to the fact that you start by being a little thirsty, but you're able to correct it. So you're able to hold on to water and kind of turn off this mechanism so you're no longer thirsty. But what's happened is your urine's still concentrated because everything's working to keep you in balance. You're still turning on vasopressin. You're still turning on the polyol pathway. And you are now hydrated normally, but at the expense that these systems are turned on. So you're underhydrated. And when that happens, you're actually triggering the fat production. You think you're hydrated, but you're only hydrated so that you're no longer thirsty, but all the systems to hold on to water are still turned off. Well, we have talked about so many different ideas that tie in with what we choose to do, starting with having high concentrated forms of fructose in sodas, in fruit juices, plus foods that are very starchy can end up triggering the same pathway that starts to store fat, how dehydration and salt can both trigger this pathway as well. And there's a third way too, Shelley. These two are big enough, but I'll go ahead. There are, the there are very big ways. So the other thing is we have, remember we have a third taste. That third taste is called savory. It's so, you know, why tomato sauce uh, and spaghetti sauce taste so good. It's kind of like that cured dried tomato taste. It's why gravies are good and curing meat makes it delicious. It's why beer is so good because of the yeast extract. It's why Caesar salads taste good, you know, because of the Parmesan. And it's why blue cheese dressing tastes good to some people. The umami flavor is really loved. And the umami flavor is due to a substance called glutamate, also to two nucleotides called IMP and AMP. And sadly, IMP and AMP are directly in the mechanism to generate uric acid. You know, when fructose is metabolized, it makes uric acid and it uses these substances that trigger this taste of savory. IMP and AMP are part of that pathway. And not only that, glutamate turns out to be converted to uric acid in the body. These three substances can activate the switch as well. And they do so through the same pathway, but just a little bit after the fructose. Especially processed red meats tend to be rich in this. And things like organ meats and shellfish, beer, they contain some of these substances and they can also make you fat by activating the switch. And the umami flavor is basically there to try to attract you to eat these kinds of foods. So it's a little bit depressing. The good news is the umami pathway is less powerful because we don't eat much of it. We eat only a few grams of glutamate a day, but we eat 70 grams of sugar a day. 
So there's a big difference in the amount that we're eating and sugar is the big boy that's driving this. High glycemic carbs are the second big one, but it is true, you can activate this pathway. And you know, uh, have you ever noticed, Shelly, how people love to drink tomato juice on airplanes? Bloody Marys, maybe you never knew that, but it's even in the internet, they say, you know, why is it that when I fly, I like Bloody Marys and things like that? Well, the Bloody Mary has a lot of tomato juice that's rich in glutamate and a little bit of alcohol and stuff like this, which also helps you generate uric acid. And when you do that, it reduces the ATP production and shifts you more to fat storage. And that actually decreases your oxygen needs. So when you go up in a plane and you go to 7,000 feet, the oxygen content in the air is just a little bit less. And it's my belief that that is why the Bloody Mary tastes so good when you get in an airplane, because you're activating this switch, which has a tendency to reduce your oxygen needs just a little bit. Rick Johnson, the next time I'm in an airplane, I'm going to order a Bloody Mary. Yes, or tomato juice. You'll just see, you know, a lot of people go, I never drink tomato juice or Bloody Marys unless I'm in an airplane. But also, from what you're saying, just don't do it too often because it can trigger some pathways that now and then to stimulate them and tweak them is fine, but to be stuck in these pathways is really detrimental to health. And people can read your book. Right. Nature wants us to be fat to find out not only all of the details of these mysteries, but also some of the dietary recommendations you have, foods you can eat, ways you can live that will benefit you so that you're more likely to live a life that has a long health span and be symptom-free of some of these terribly painful or die young or be debilitated young diseases. And in my book, I actually lay out a plan and I also believe that you should still be able to eat a little sugar. You should still be able to eat a little bit of high glycemic carbs. And a lot of it is supported by research and experimental studies, including studies where we supplemented patients with, with fruits, for example, and showed that natural fruits, when given modestly, actually makes things better, not worse. So please don't hear this talk and go, oh, my God, I can't eat anything that's good because it's not true. It's the problem of eating some foods that are really bad, like liquid sugar is really bad. Once you understand the mechanism, you can actually figure out the best way to avoid activating the switch and giving you back your health. Now, I was promised 15 minutes, actually half an hour, but 15 minutes of my own question. Yes, sure. So the first one that I have, before creatures evolved to store fat on purpose, and for beneficial purposes. What was the survival advantage of converting fructose to fat? The advantage of converting fructose to fat has always been to be a, a help you survive, to provide another source of energy when you don't have food around. Was that the earliest reason for that? For single-celled creatures, are there some single-celled creatures that don't store fat or that decided to store fat, and what was the first reason they did it? I'm not aware of single-cell creatures storing fat that does not involve, from my studies, anything that's storing fat, it tends to be using an aspect of this pathway. How about algae? Does algae have this pathway? Algae makes fat, and it's a single-celled creature or thing. I do not know. I can't answer that question. But I do think that this pathway has a basis that goes way back in biology. It's a pathway that some animals have taken more advantage of than others. It is intriguingly consistent. Yeah. But if we step back from that and see what was happening before, what was the reason that these creatures did this? So if you go back to the very, very beginning of life, okay, we're going to go way, way, way back. The earliest life was thought to just be RNA. They called it the RNA world. And there was no DNA, there was no proteins. If you were an organism with RNA and the RNA starts to degrade, what you generate is uric acid. So it's, it's like a degradation product. And so one might consider the possibility that it could become a signaling mechanism because you don't want to have your RNA degraded. So if you're an RNA form, Uric acid was probably an alarm signal for degradation of the RNA. Today, the RNA world has carried over to current life. And some of the most important 
components of RNA are involved in the biology of life. So ATP, for example, the essence of energy is an RNA carryover. Uric acid is an RNA carryover and it's an alarm signal. Things like NADH and these very important mediators and the biologic reactions in the body are all carryovers from the RNA world. So that's your guess, is that it has something to do with RNA, which connects in with uric acid. Uric acid turns out to be a survival mechanism for many, many animals. And it have a very basic role in both survival and reproduction. If you're, for example, a crayfish, you use uric acid to help you survive in brackish waters because it helps decrease your oxygen needs. If you're a platinarius flatworm and you are mating, you use uric acid as your pheromone to tell the other worm that you're ready to copulate. So uric acid it was developed as an alarm signal to help animals, and even in bacteria, uric acid is used as a survival mechanism in the setting of radiation or high heat. So I think that very early on, uric acid took on a role of being a survival or alarm signal. A signal, because it was something that was excreted by an organism. You no, know, it was something that was broken down. So when your RNA or DNA or ATP is broken down, this is generated. So it sort of says, hey, What's going on? Are we losing our genes? Are we losing our RNA? Are we losing our energy? So it becomes like an alarm signal. It seems to me that sometimes when someone finds a reason for something that's partway through the evolutionary channel, there may be another reason further back that still is there sometimes as one of the reasons that things happen. Yes. The simple example that I'm thinking of is shellfish. Shellfish did not evolve to have a shell that opens and closes because long ago a mollusk without a shell said, someday I'd like to have a shell. Instead, as a cell, it was excreting calcium because calcium signaling means that you have to be spitting out calcium to keep calcium signaling clear inside the cell. But they were just kind of hanging out in one place around a lot of calcium flowing in and out. The calcium built up around them and a lot of those mollusks probably died. At some point, by accident or intent or whatever, they stopped just having mounds of calcium around them and instead had shells. So it wasn't that they thought that they would need a shell sometime. It was that they were first responding to the threat of spitting out calcium and then being suffocated by it. Well, how about if, you know, so the way life evolves is that, you know, there are mutations that change things. If this shellfish, this mollusk, is spitting out calcium and it takes a mutation that allows it to start forming a shell, perhaps that helped it evade a predator and then it survives and then it passes that mutated gene to another mollusk. And, and then at that point it becomes a gene for expressing and creating a shell because the shell has survival advantage, but it didn't start that way. Right. It starts as a random mutation. You know, it's not like Nature wants us to be fat. It's the fact that in the process of evolution, we develop these protective mechanisms. Was it that initially, though? And that's what I'm curious about. Because you've done so much to delve into this. I'm curious about this other part. This may be off base, but um, one example I could point to is a guy named, I think I've maybe talked about him once before, Matthias Heinemann, who was looking at the thermodynamics of why do yeast make ethanol? Why do they spit out this perfectly good sugar that they've been consuming? Well, ethanol, in the early days, animals couldn't really eat ethanol. And so it was a way to avoid an animal from eating the yeast. And actually, I've done a little work on this. That, that was the benefit of it, but that was not the original reason that no, they spit no, it out. No, no. The thought is it always begins as a random mutation, and then if there's a survival advantage, then it stays, it gets passed to the next lineage. Matthias Heinemann would say that the random mutation was that if a yeast is taking in sugars too fast, then it starts to cause an inefficiency in the middle of the pathways which is toxic. And that toxic inefficiency in the middle is one where if it just kept trying to make the 
sugar that's being metabolized through into ethanol and onto other things, um, into energy. If it just kept doing that and made the assembly line do that, it would back up so much ethanol, it would be toxic to the yeast and kill it. And so his hypothesis is that um, there's something called the Gibbs equation of thermodynamic whatever. And it's that at a certain point, that little yeast cell figures out that this is too much to handle right now. And even though we've made this process through to here to make this metabolism work, if we do any more, we're going to expend more energy to use this than we'll make in the end. And in the meantime, we'll have this backup of this toxic product and it'll kill us. Well, I have to say I'm kind of Darwinian. So the way I view it is that when a mutation occurs, if there's a natural selection advantage, then that mutation may be accepted and end up then passed into the system. So let me tell you uh, my yeast story, alcohol story. Our ancestors were not able to drink alcohol. Um, yeah, but around 10 million years ago, a mutation occurred that allowed our ancestors, they weren't human then, they were kind of pre-human, that allowed them to drink alcohol. It was during a period of famines. Our ancestors were still primarily eating fruit as their favorite food. When the fruit trees became more and more sparse, a lot of the fruit that they would find might be have already fallen but be fermenting. And so they were not edible. And what we think is that this mutation that occurred allowed the animals to eat the fermenting fruit and to metabolize the alcohol and thereby get some of the sugar that was present in the fruit to help them survive so that it was a survival advantage to have that mutation. But the consequence is that now they can metabolize alcohol. And so not too long after that, alcohol becomes, you know, something that people enjoy and like. And one of the interesting things is alcohol activates the polyol pathway too. So it's another way to stimulate sweetness. And in fact, when we were able to show that the craving of alcohol can be blocked by blocking the craving of sugar, that the two are intertwined. And I actually have uh, research funds from the National Institute of Health to try to develop uh, inhibitors of sugar craving that will also block alcohol craving. So the two are definitely linked. From what you said about what people eat, if somebody who has a propensity toward alcoholism drinks enough and avoids sugars and salt and stuff and modifies what they eat, they may not have as much alcohol craving. Alcohol craving and sugar craving are linked. And if you stop drinking alcohol, people will tend to want to drink sugar or eat sugar. And if you take people who crave sugar and take away their sugar, they may end up wanting more alcohol. That's so, right. At AA meetings, the amount of candy is huge, probably. I, I've never been to an AA meeting, but I bet you it is. But I will tell you this. As a physician, when I have a patient get admitted for alcoholic liver disease and I go in to see them, usually there's a soft drink can on the table and both can cause liver disease. And in fact, in our animals, if we block sugar, fructose metabolism, we can block alcohol-induced liver disease. So we actually believe that the liver disease from alcohol is really a sugar disorder. So the two are really linked. That was fascinating. I had, I had thought that alcoholism had something to do with the P54 po uh, pathway, but my colleague Beth Bennett set me straight. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so it, it is more, it's a, it's a mystery, and it's something where it's one of these parts of the body that tends to wear out and be out of balance the more that somebody's exposed to this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, lots of things like that. So I can turn this off, or else I can... Are we done? No, well... I just, I think that there may be another layer. There is. This, this can go really deep. But, but anyway, yeah. And, and um, there's, there's some things I disagreed with in your book. Oh, okay. What do you disagree with? Well, you said that one reason that children don't have this as much is because they're more inefficient at processing these things that lead to fat storage. 
we did a study right here at Children's. Mm -hmm. So we took children, you know, fructose is absorbed through a transporter called GLUT5. GLUT5 in a normal animal, very, very little is in the intestine. So if you give fructose to a person who's not ever had sugar, they're going to get cramps and diarrhea because they can't absorb it. And then over time, as you give them more and more sugar, they turn on these transporters so they can absorb it better. And you can show that in animals easily. Oh, this is diarrhea. No, no, not diarrhea. I'm talking about absorption of sugar. If I give a load of fructose to a five-year-old who's never had sugar. That was a rare five-year-old. Yes, in this country. Yeah, so if you give fructose to a five-year-old in this country who's had a lot of sugar, they'll absorb more than if they had never had sugar because they have the transporter. So we did a study at Children's where we took kids that were lean, kids that were overweight, and kids that were obese with fatty liver documented by biopsy. We gave them all the same dose of fructose. We measured how much they absorb. And all the overweight fat kids with fatty liver, they absorbed all their fructose. People that were overweight had intermediate absorption, and the people who were lean had really reduced absorption. So the same amount of sugar goes in, but not the same amount is absorbed. What if, I've been around some little kids who, after they eat a cookie, it's like being next to an oven. Their body is burning off the sugar. You've been around that too. Where they're not getting fat off of the sugar. Instead, their bodies are like a... They're, they're like an oven that's just flaming. You can sit next to them and you're warm yeah. because their bodies are burning it, it off. It's thermogenic, it, the, the rapid burning of fructose. Is that inefficient or is that effective? Is that child's body being effective at um, not being overwhelmed by a substance that is too much for it? No, what happens is they're burning, the ATP levels are falling and they get hyperactive and then and then after that, they'll actually reduce their energy. They've activated the switch. You know, it's easier for me to have fat on my body than it was 10 years ago. Yeah, sure. Is that because my body has finally become efficient at storing fat, or is it because my body is less efficient at being able to cast off excess energy that would be just as hard to use for my body as it is for the yeast to use all of the glucose that goes in that they spit out as ethanol. There's multiple reasons for why when a person's young, they tend to be invincible. And then when you get older, your metabolism slows down and you become overweight easier. When you're young, you tend to have a very healthy mitochondria. Your energy factories are really healthy. It takes a while to dampen them down. Also, the ability to absorb sugar is, is reduced in the beginning, but that's not the main reason. You tend to have a very healthy mitochondria is what kind of keeps you going. And what happens is the way this pathway works is it causes oxidative stress to the mitochondria. Each time that happens, the ATP production goes down, the fat storage goes up, but it's transient, right? And then everything goes back to normal. But when you keep hitting with oxidative stress over time, the mitochondria take a beating, and over time they start to decrease in number. They get sluggish and they get they senescent. Get they, they get, get senescent, senescent, they, they fission. fission. The amount of ATP produced stays down. They cause more they, pollution. Yeah. Once the mitochondria are low, then what happens is it's very hard to lose weight because you're kind of like reset to that higher weight. So you can lose weight, but you'll want to go right back to that weight. The end of my book, I talk about this, and I talk about how you can reverse that. That's the whole bit about exercising and zone two and stimulating mitochondrial growth and all that. With a kid who is obese in your studies, is that kid's mitochondria more efficient or less efficient than the child who is Lean. Oh, they're less efficient. The child who's obese is less efficient, but oftentimes their mitochondria number is still normal. So when you first become overweight or obese, usually the mitochondrial density is still good. Your energy levels, your ATP levels tend to still be pretty good when you're not eating sugar. Obesity is much more reversible in that very beginning. If you find someone who's only been overweight or obese for like five years, 
it's much easier to cure obesity than if they've been obese for 20 years, because at that point, they've lost more of their mitochondrial energy. The longer you've been obese, the harder it is to fix. It's still it fixable. It is fixable. This is the incredible thing. It's still fixable. My friend Inigo Samalan, he's the man who's really done a lot of wonderful work on restoration of the mitochondria. And, you know, you might want to talk to him because he's really like the world's expert. And he's here in the Denver area. I have enjoyed talking with you about this and hearing what you're doing. Um, this one question I have, well, we're not quite seeing it the same way as a question. But I do think you're on to something. And I do think that there may be something driving it behind in evolution earlier that will be interesting to discover. It comes down to uric acid, I think, is the key. That was interesting, and I don't understand the uric acid side. I, I do wonder sometimes whether fat storage originally evolved, because in, in some cases it's more stable to just shunt the energy that's excess into a stable place, which is fat, as opposed to trying to use it or excrete it entirely. It is interesting, like uh, some very primitive insects will store fat in vacuoles, but they'll store little vacuoles of uric acid that sit right in, in between them. I'm Shelley Schlender. You've been listening to an extended interview with Rick Johnson, CU medical professor and author of Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. If you'd like to read a transcript of this interview, go to our website, howonearthradio.org.com.